I don't care. Anytime we rush and bring people in without properly recruiting, vetting, screening, we're going to make mistakes. Church employees heading to trial charged with sexually assaulting a young girl. The reality is it only takes one time, one person, one mistake, one incident. And now the safety zone. Mike, we're here today and going to dive into some current events or at least spring off of them. And mainly because they're important things to bring to light in terms of what you do here at Safe Hiring and why it's so important. I had a recent incident at Cedarville University where the president had actually they had fired him or let him go. And then they ended up bringing him back because he had hired someone, a, t- a teacher t- who has sexual abuse cases in his background. And in this particular instance, there is a Christian element here. And he was looking at a restoration process for this man. Problem was, there's nothing wrong with the restoration process, of course, but he was working with students while he's doing this. And then another recent incident that has come out is a mega church pastor, very well known, older pastor, but has been around for a long time and very respected. His son, who was a volunteer in the youth ministries, has had sexual attraction to children and actually confessed that to his dad, I think, you know, seeking help. But his dad didn't remove him from volunteering with the children's ministries and nobody knew at the church. And until this has all come out to light because his other son brought it actually out. So what we would think strange things, but it really speaks, Mike, to why you exist, why uh, Safe Hiring Solutions is there, Safe Ministry, Safe Volunteer. Just really thought we would dive into this because these are becoming places that we think are safe. A pastor leaving his own son in a position of working with children who is attracted sexually to children. Yeah. In, In that context, we're talking about two examples of church ministry. Mm -hmm. situations related to sexual abuse or sexual desire. And Mm -hmm. hopefully there was no acting upon that. I'm basing that off an article, but let's hope that there was no acting upon that desire. The church is so different than any other organization we work with. We work with schools. We work with companies. We work with Kiwanis International. We work with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Clubs. It's a no-brainer when you're working with these organizations, when Mm -hmm. you're talking about Who are we trying to keep out of your organization? We're trying to keep a sexual abuser out of your organization. I mean, that is the number one mission of what we do with these groups. And there's no restoration discussion. There's, I mean, it's a strike three year out if you've been convicted of these crimes. It's very much like a conversation I had one of our first podcasts. I was talking about Dan Stonebreaker, who participated in killing four boys in my community. And then Dan and I, He helped me write a book and became friends. But I can remember sitting there one day, we were just kind of talking, wrapping things up there at the prison. And I looked at Dan and I said, Dan, you know the honest truth, right? God forgave you the day you were arrested because you told me you got on your knees in that jail cell and you asked for forgiveness and you slept better than you had at any point in your life. I said, God forgave you. The second part of the story is the state of Indiana will never forgive you because you committed a grossly violent act. And the state's not going to forgive you for that. Some things that we do, God will still forgive us. God can heal us. But because we have done them, 
I am no longer qualified to do certain things. And I think that's where the church gets confused sometimes. We talk about this a lot with our church and ministries. We talk about how do you handle a sex offender, not that wants to volunteer, but a sex offender that wants to come to church. And the reality is this is a home for sinners, right? And so we're going to have all kinds of people walking in these doors. And what we talk about a lot is policy. And you're going to have a discussion with that individual and say, hey, look, we understand your background. And because of that, when you come in, you could be escorted. You're not going to be allowed the children's wing. There are certain protocols that are going to be put in place because you have done these things in your past. And so when I hear things like restoration, I unfortunately, I hate to even use this term, but it's ignorance because you've got to understand the mind of a sexual abuser. And I was teaching a class at the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy years ago. It was a, a five-day train-the-trainer program on violence against women and children. It was equipping community leaders and law enforcement to go back and train in their community and understand domestic violence and sexual violence, very interconnected crimes. And on one of the breaks, there was a psychologist that worked with the Department of Corrections on a specialized sex offender program. And we started chit-chatting. And I very directly asked this person, I said, what is the likelihood of changing that sex offender's behavior? What's the research say? And he said, nearly impossible. And I said, so you work in a program every day of your life working with sex offenders that are incarcerated, yet you know that the likelihood of changing their behavior with these kind of modeling and changing behavior type programs, none of them work because the recidivism rate is extraordinarily high. Can God change that? Absolutely. But I'm going to tell you what, Cedarville, you've had a history you do not bring them in. That is not just poor judgment. That's negligence. Yeah, exactly. And restoration is something completely different. Most restoration is a process where you're not serving while you're going through a restoration process. You're not pastoring if it's a pastor or you're not serving in a particular part of the church if you're, you're going through that. And to say that you're in a restoration program but you're still in the midst of serving doesn't really make sense. Like you said, it, there's a there's no doubt that God can change people's hearts. And there's a lot of pastors that, you know, have some really interesting backgrounds, you know, yeah, that, for sure. that God has used. But but like you said, there's a balance there of it's kind of the it'd be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You, you have to balance still the safety and see a track record, too of that person. I mean, I don't think it's wrong if you've had a, a, an issue with a particular, you know, with young people, you don't serve in that capacity. That's not what you do. It is probably the single crime that stands alone on an island that shows very little promise for any kind of behavioral change. And when you look at the manipulation that goes into the sexual abuse, there was a study done years ago he was one of the original FBI profilers. He doesn't get near as much attention as like John Douglas did. And John wrote some books and I think some movies were based on those books. But Roy Hazelwood was more of the sexual violent offender expert. He is just a 
the, the wealth of knowledge listening to this man was incredible. But one of the studies he talked about, they looked at, and it was a small sampling. It was like 20 or 30 sex offenders that had been convicted of violent sexual offenses. But the thing that stands out when you bring it all together is the amount of victims in their wake. So maybe one victim sent them to prison, but between that group of 20 or 40, I cannot remember the exact number. It's irregardless when you hear these numbers. There were something like 800 known rapes among that small sample of men, Mm. the number of attempted rapes. So what, what I'm saying is at the point that this comes to light, it is not yeah. the first time this has happened. It is there's probably a whole trail of victims behind that particular abuser. And so where the church has to understand this is you got a duty and a responsibility and a biblical response to protecting those children. Yeah. And you've got to be strong enough to stand up and say, God loves you, but you're not working with our kids. Right. Uh, you can't. And first of all, We've heard the term relapse, right? We talk about you're going out to dinner. Somebody orders a bottle of wine and you're having dinner with somebody you don't know. And it turns out they're an alcoholic. And the next thing you know, you're introducing them to something that is destroying their life right. and they relapse. So we cannot put them in those positions exactly. to, to potentially relapse at some point. Exactly. And and it kind of brings to light, we've seen these cases just increase, I hate to say, but within the church environment. And I think there's a certain, because of the way the thinking there, you know, and trying to show grace, trying to, of course, always think the best of someone. And it's just really learning. It can really become a, a soft target, right? A church a atmosphere, because there's there probably is more compassion and I don't want to say openness, but just towards people in general versus a regular work atmosphere. Yeah. When we work with churches, I was talking yesterday to Don, who's leading our safe ministry. Now I said, Don, the difference between a church and every other organization we work with, a church has open doors. Every other group we work with, They have closed doors. We can control access. You have to come in door number one. You have to check in. We know who you are. Yeah, I get it. Some parts of churches are closed. Service starts. You're closing off the children's wing. You can segregate off and, and manage. But really, churches as a whole, they're an open environment. You don't pre register to come to church. If you're meeting in person these days, then people walk in. You have new people every week. You're not doing a background check at the door. Exactly. So it's a very open environment. Which is what they want. They want everyone to feel welcome to come, which, which of course. Exactly the way it should be. We, We need to get into the head. And if you want to protect kids, you've got to put yourself in the position of trying to understand how these sex abusers think. They are extraordinarily manipulative. They look for the path of least resistance. And why do we see somebody that gets arrested and they're a volunteer at church, a volunteer in Little League, a volunteer everywhere? Because they're going to volunteer everywhere they can volunteer to get access to children. And so understanding that mentality, when I talk about sexual violence, And I talk about how interconnected it is with domestic violence. What we found was 
the more I worked with somebody that disclosed that they were being abused, almost every single case I ever worked in Nashville of a victim that was raped by somebody she knew, which is the vast majority of the crimes in the United States. It's not strangers. Mm. The vast majority, she disclosed first that she had been pushed or shoved. It came in as a push or a shove. And it's because over time she trusted me. I built a rapport and I kept talking to them and they felt comfortable and they felt like the system wasn't going to let them down. We were going to hold our word to them. And all of a sudden I went from a push and a shove to he drove across James Robertson Parkway to the Super 8, two blocks from where we're standing, and he raped me in front of my eight-year-old son. And that's a real case right there. And I'm standing on a sidewalk and I went from somebody that was being pushed to somebody that got raped in front of their eight year old son. So now I've got a lot of first of all, I've got a felony, a major felony, but I've got an eight year old son that now needs some extraordinary care because of what he just saw happen to his mother within the last few days. So I have little understanding of anybody that says putting them back in front of children when they're having sexual thoughts or desires of children, that that's a restorative process. That is not, we don't put anybody in a position to fail. And I'm hoping in that particular case that that was thoughts and desires that had never become anything more than thoughts and desires. In that particular case, the fact that he told his dad, I thought was enlightening kind of like a call for help, knowing these are wrong thoughts. And it was a little astonishing to me how, again, the pastor, he's been a good man right on in his teaching, but I was just shocked that here you you have this son coming to him and really confessing, looking for help. And he's left there, which isn't helping him. It seems like in with safe ministry, and I mean, on the church side and, and what you do with safe ministry, there seems to be two key components. One is recruiting, right? Making sure that you're, you're not bringing in the wrong people to work or to volunteer. And then the second is when you have an incident, how it's handled. What do we do? Are those the main two areas that you see is where they need help? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm going to start with the second. So we're going to go backwards in how we handle just because it seems like this week and you shared several articles with me this week. And I told my wife last night, we're sitting around. I was like, man, the church is under attack. And, and as I look at how we handle it, let me say that not being transparent, not being open, trying to hide it, that does not work. There was a military installation uh, more than a decade ago that had three incidents where soldiers came back from a, a battlefront and they were special operations soldiers and three of them killed a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend. And I talked to the provost marshal almost immediately because I was working on a Department of Defense task force of domestic violence. And my advice to the provost marshal was in that incident or three incidents, I said, do not let anybody from your base step up to that press release or press microphone and make any excuses for these behaviors. Step up to that mic own it. It is not the training. It is not the military that caused this. These are issues with power and control, and they killed somebody in their family, and we're going to take care of those cases. 
what they did is they stepped up there and they started, well, maybe it was this and maybe it was that. And yeah, blah, 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 blah. next thing you know, they're on Oprah and they're being lamb blasted in the media. And a month later, I went down to do training. And I remember the provost marshal was like, I wish we would have listened to what you said. Yeah. I said, just be transparent. Too often yeah. what we want to do is try to hide it. I told my pastor one time on a church where I was an elder, we were working through some things and we were looking for a youth pastor. And I said, I'm telling you right now, I'll set through a million boring sermons is if my kids are being fed and they're safe in the back end. I won't stay here. I don't know if he likes the boring, right? <laughs> right. But I said, I will not stay here five minutes if I love your sermons and something has happened in the back end. You're going to lose everybody in this church. So how you handle this and the transparency for which you handle this. And I'll be honest, I think a lot of times many of our leaders in the church and faith community, they don't understand that violent a sex abuser, child abuser, yeah. and, and that mentality. Yeah. I mean, they don't come out of an experience like I had in right. law enforcement and being raised in a home that was working within the violence prevention aspects. And so I feel for them. And so sometimes they're making decisions and I'm going, boy, that was ignorant. But in reality, they don't know any better. They're, well, they're right. not intentional. It, right. A lot of it isn't intentional. And it's, but it's just that, like you said, it's the lack of understanding. And really, if you haven't been in that background, especially as a pastor or someone, I mean, you want to keep your congregation safe. But again, you're also looking at the heart of that person, right? Or trying to figure out what's going on in their life. It's all very personal in how they deal with it. And I think giving them the tools that, protects other people, protects their ministry. And, and quite frankly, it's also helping that person. It's not helping that person to whitewash or, and again, I'm not saying they, they do it intentionally, but ultimately it's helping that perpetrator. Exactly. When that son asks for help, and if we take that at face value and say, this was legitimate cry for help, the worst thing I could do is put him back in a position in an area with children where I'm having these desires for them. And what is rare about this, and I think probably goes to the heart of a lot of problems with helping people move beyond where they don't offend, is you truly have to believe you have a problem. And yes. if you don't believe you have a problem, it's hard to help you get better. But if I'm telling you I'm having these thoughts, I have a problem, right. you have a candidate here that may be successful with the right kind of counseling and programs, right. Right. not going back in front of children, remove that that could bring them down. Not to mention you have an obligation. I can't yeah. imagine how I would feel as a parent knowing my children were in that area right. for that period of time when this was known. And nothing was said. And nothing, nothing was said. said. I'm gone. I'm yeah. telling you, I'm gone. Yeah, okay? exactly. uh, my kids are gone. I'm gone. We're no longer there. That's exactly. the reality. But you, you mentioned recruiting and it seems like this has been our theme, but this is the core of everything. I don't care if you're a volunteer group, a church, yeah. a, a school, a corporate. I don't care. Anytime we rush and bring people in without properly recruiting, vetting, screening, we're going to make mistakes. And it, it is so critically important. I think with the church and ministry is 
the threshold for that recruiting is so low, but they don't even understand that. They don't understand that they're using tools that will not stand up to a sex abuser. It will not stop them. They're not using tools outside of a criminal background check or they're buying these criminal background checks. And I'm telling you, most of your big, large mega church, I know who they're using and the tools that they are using will not work. They will not stop them because they're using these cheap tools because it feeds into I give you something cheap and fast. I'll call it this, a national background check. And the church looks at that. And how would they know the difference? They don't. They're trusting you. And in reality, that tool is not going to be able to stand up against the weight of that offender. They're going to beat us every time with those tools. And that's why I feel like sometimes I'm preaching to the choir and we have Mm -hmm. organizations that walk away because they want something cheap, but I sleep at night because I'm not going to sell you something that has very little ability to protect the church or children. I will lose value. I will lose clients. I will lose money. I'm a for-profit company. I'll lose Mm -hmm. money before I'll ever sell you something that doesn't have the ability to help protect your church or ministry or organization. And I think it's important. There's smaller churches where budgets are very difficult and certainly understand that. And I'm sure too, that there's different parameters for, for a small church and a, and a mega church because of just the amounts of ministry going on, how big the buildings are. The, there's just a lot of difference in that and you approach it that way. But I think the important thing for ministries Overall, whether it's a church, whether it's a Christian university, whatever the gamut may be, a parachurch group, the reality is it only takes one time, one person, one mistake, one incident. And not only does it destroy a child or a parent's life, we see it all the time now. Um, Unfortunately, in the news, it destroys that ministry. It destroys the the gospel witness that they're proclaiming. Not saying they're intending that, but the ramifications are so deep and wide, and it's a ripple effect, that the reality is you can't afford not to do diligence to address these issues and to be safe. Not in a, of course, we're not talking in a paranoid way, but but in a due diligence, understanding that it just takes one, one incident. And it's heartbreaking to see wonderful ministries that have multi-campus churches or a mega church that one incident happened and it wasn't handled right. And it that ministry has either crumpled down to a shell of its existence or isn't even around. And these things have to be taken into real thought on, on planning on the ministry side. It's the whole reason we launched Safe Ministry. Don and I were talking yesterday. We work with thousands of church and ministry. There's nothing new about what mm-hmm. we are doing. We're not new to the ministry game. I mean, we do right. hundreds and hundreds of thousands of background checks and security assessments and everything we do. We've been doing it for 15 years, but we needed to create a lane specifically for church and ministry called Safe Ministry because they are so 
unique. And so Mm -hmm. it's a place they can land and really get information, education, tools to help protect their church and ministry. And the bottom line is because we're technologists, so we're a little unique on the background screening side. So that part of our company, we're very different than a lot of our competitors in that a lot of them use third-party technology. They're not really technologists. They're just curating data. Mm-hmm. We're technologists, meaning we figure out ways to go get data using technology, which can drive costs down. What is most surprising probably for most medium to large organizations is not only can we provide much better 360 solution, we can oftentimes do it at or below what you're currently paying for mm-hmm. about 20% of what we're going to provide you mm-hmm. because of the technology that we have built into these processes to be able to do these things. In closing, I, I do want to bring up too another thing because I had never connected this myself. You have a, a product called RefLink and with nonprofit organizations, whether they're faith-based or, or not, they rely immensely on their volunteer base. If it's a church who's running all of the, you know, Sunday school and children's church and, you know, I mean, all the different ministries, it's, it's volunteers, of course, they can't afford to, to pay staff. And, and even in the church world, even if they can, that's a part of doing church, right? Is that we all gather together and serve. But volunteerism is huge in the nonprofit world. And RefLink is a helpful tool right? For what they need to do in checking out those volunteers. Yeah. What you just mentioned goes to the heart of safe ministry. There's a couple things to understand. There's security companies popping up every day. Why? Because there's a lot of money in security, school, church, organizational. Now we got more fear in society than we've ever had. And so more and more security popping up. When I go to look at a company or a vendor or potential partner, the first thing I do is I dig into the leadership. I want to know who's leading this company. A lot of the competitors of ours, when you go look at the leadership team, they might be technologists or data people anymore. You're seeing a lot of venture capital owns these companies. They don't know anything about security. They don't understand the mindset. They don't have folks that come out of the Secret Service or Navy SEALs, or I've got a law enforcement prevention background. The group that we've pulled together that can help put programs together They've been on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. And so they understand. So they're helping us build tools because they're trying to prevent things from happening. And so when you mentioned RefLink, research shows 80% of sex offenders do not have a criminal history. Mm. Why? Because they haven't been caught yet. And so if I'm only throwing this cheap, low-level criminal background check at my volunteers or employees, and that is my only tool to keep a sex offender out of our organization, you might as well pack up your bags because it's going to fail 80% of the time. That's where we built RefLink years ago. And RefLink is an automated tool for doing reference checks. Mm. And so what RefLink will allow you to do is not only in a larger ministry, be able to automate a process, but by automating it, I'm also making it a lot easier for a reference to be honest, because I'm not on the phone going, Hey, Mike, can you tell me about Don? And I'm going, (laughs) Oh, I don't really want to tell you that. 
So I'm right. just going to say, yeah, he worked here from here to here. And yeah, Don's an okay guy. And that's all I can tell you. Well, RefLink is candidate driven, meaning if I'm doing a reference check on Melinda, you're going to get a uh, text or an email from RefLink. You're going to enter all your reference information. The church or ministry or organization can set, who do you want? You can say, I want this many references, these type of references. I want supervisor. I want former supervisor, other volunteer supervisors. I want you to complete a self-evaluation. They can create their own template based on the position, children's versus usher or greeter or security team, all of they can create their own templates and it's all automated. Once they initiate the background check, because what we do is we integrate everything together. We integrate the background check, the reference check, the security check-in. All of these are integrated 360 solutions. So it kicks it off, sends you a text. You can fill out all your reference information on your phone. It does all the reminders. So if Melinda doesn't do it within 24 hours, she gets another text. Hey, come on. Same thing with your references. We're adding the ability for a reference that is completing feedback. At the end, we'll give an an organization an option to say, would you want a reference providing feedback to have the ability to add somebody else? So I'm providing feedback on Melinda. When I hit submit, I get a pop-up that says, hey, is there anybody else you think we should talk to about Melinda? And you go, well, actually, I remember, you know, <laughs> Susie told me at the water cooler, she's this or that. I can now push that on to yeah. somebody else to provide feedback. So it starts to move away from the actual candidate. And I tell our clients all the time, if you're asking for two references or three, everybody's got two or three that you know are going to say good things about you. Yes. Ask for five. Ask for six. And you're starting to stretch them and you're going to be surprised at the amount of feedback because this is anonymous and it'll let the reference know we will not identify you personally any response that you give. And so there's a lot of options within RefLink, but it is a extraordinarily inexpensive tool Mm. to be able to cultivate and gather a lot of information. And not only that, but if you're using it for staffing, Mm-hmm. It is also, it may not preclude somebody, but you may be able to uncover competency deficiencies where when they come into the organization, I know areas I need to coach them up on, but we already have some work here. So it right. can help with that as well. Absolutely. It's amazing when you think about it, because gosh, all the years I've worked, of course, everybody always asks for a couple of references. Well, what do you do? You call up your, of course, people you're close to, hey, will you be a reference? That kind of a thing. And that doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. I mean, of course, we all do that. But to have that transparency, where you can get past the kind of the the gloss, for a better lack of words, and really fine tune, I think is just an amazing way to go about it, especially when you're talking about when you're talking about positions that are critical in terms of working with children and or teens, those are real specific areas that, that garner more concern. And you've got not only when you look at RefLink, it also provides an opportunity to expand the information you're collecting because, and I'll give you an example as we close, we have a huge ministry that has tens of thousands of volunteers 
Mm-hmm. And they were collecting all this on paper, three references, and the volunteer had to provide feedback. So somebody was reading and digesting after they made all these phone calls and were trying to write it all down. Then somebody had to consume all of that. We put it into graphs and mm-hmm. scoring models and so easy consumption. What we did for them is we were able to, I think, double the amount of information they were collecting. So sometimes you might ask a question a couple different times, a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. And just to make sure you're getting consistent feedback on a certain competency or behavior. And so what it allows you to do is also gather oftentimes much more information than you would ever gather doing it on a telephone. And easier, I mean, manpower wise, because when you, you just said that, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, oh my goodness, you know, how long would that take? Shuffling that much paperwork and man, man hours and or how many staff doing that, just that alone, even for a group. I've say. got a webinar at 11 and it's geared toward large public schools. And it's about being virtual, virtual recruiting. Mm -hmm. Well, everything we do can be done virtually. The background check, we can do remote ID validation. I can validate who you are through government ID, scanning, all kinds of algorithms, tools. So when as a large ministry, your volunteers can click on a link and submit their information. The criminal background check goes one direction, reflink goes another. It all takes off on its own and runs on its own. We work with outside of church ministry. Some of our clients will do 50 to 100,000 background checks a year. So I don't have any church that I know of that even rises to that kind of level. So we know a lot about screening huge volumes and doing it remotely or virtually automating process where it's no labor involved, but it's doing a lot of validating of that person behind the scenes. Hmm. Well, Mike, I know a a lot of information to digest and and sometimes I feel like a Debbie Downer, right? You know, when you're (laughs) seeing the the news and it's like, we don't want our listeners to think, hey, that was depressing. But the reality is with what you're doing in in your work, these are all real life situations. And unfortunately, the world is the world and you can't change that. So sometimes we have to get away from... (gasps) the shock that is happening even in churches, right? That it's the world we're living in. And so we need to just rise up and we need to do our due diligence, basically. And so if a pastor's listening or any executive pastor, or anyone on the church staff is listening, how would they get in touch with you to, to learn more? Yeah, uh, safehiringsolutions.com. You click on Safe Ministry. You can get a lot more information about who we are, what we're doing, all of our contact information's on there. Reach out to us, and we got chat. We've got direct dial phone numbers, everything you need to get in touch with us if you want to have a conversation and learn a little bit more. We're all about educating. That's great. Well, we appreciate Mike what you're doing, and look forward to our next episode. All right, thanks, Melinda. This podcast was sponsored by. Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com.